We're going to learn the Hamedrish Vahamasa and Parshas Vayechi. The first drasha explains the messages that Yaakov gives Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi, which, unlike the other sons, are not positive. Yaakov rebukes them, so the Hamedrish Vahamasa is going to explain what's going on. When it comes to Ruvain, Yaakov says, Pachaz Kamayim al Tosar, that he was too hasty like water. That's why he made a mistake, so he needs to correct that character trait, and he can't be the leader of the Jewish people. So the Medrash quotes a few different versions of different acronyms that this word pachaz could mean, peches zayin. But then it quotes that Rebbe Lezer Hamodai explained it in a positive way, that it stands for za'at charadet parach, that Ruvain shook and he regretted what he did, so Ruvain did teshuva, and therefore parach chet me'alecha, the sin flew away from him. So this is an unusual interpretation because in the Torah it has a negative meaning and according to Rabbi Lezer HaModai he's giving it a positive spin. Now the Medrash also makes another positive statement just like water is opened from one place to the other so to you Ruvain you were opened you were forgiven for what you did like water. So again the comparison to water is not negative but it's positive. So all this needs explanation and then the Medrash comes comments later that Ruvain will not be atoned fully until Moshe comes about. So all of this needs to be explained. Now, similarly, when it comes to Shimon and Levi, so Yaakov calls them brothers. So there's different interpretations of why he identifies them as brothers when all of his sons were brothers, but the Medrash quotes that they were brothers for Dina and not for Yosef, meaning they stood up to protect Dina, but then they did not stand up for Yosef because they led the charge to sell Yosef. So Yaakov is rebuking them about that. And then Yaakov says that he doesn't want to be mentioned amongst them. And the Medrash interprets that, that it's referring to when Zimri in the times of Pinchas did something immoral publicly. So Zimri came from the tribe of Shimon. So Yaakov was saying that he did not want to be mentioned in regard to that very distasteful story. So the Medrash Hamas is going to explain this. And he begins with a pasuk in Megillas Rus when they're giving Boaz and Rus the brachas when they first get married. So they compare Rus to three earlier women in Jewish history. They say, Hashem should make this woman like Rachel and Leah. That the two of them built the house of Israel. So first they compare Rus to Rachel and Leah. And your children should be like parrots who was born to Tamar. So they also include Tamar. So what is the significance of Rachel and Leah and Tamar and that Tamar had a son, parrots? So he explains that the Gemara says that there was a historical question whether Tamar was allowed to marry into the Jewish people because she came from the nation of Moab and historically they were not not permitted to marry into the Jewish people. So the reason why Rus was allowed to marry Boaz is because the rabbis determined that the prohibition against marrying someone from Moab only applied to the men, not the women. So Rus was permitted to marry a Jew. 
So the Gemara says, why should that be the case? So it explains because the whole reason why Jews are not allowed to marry people from Moab is because when the Jews were traveling, the people of Moab were inhospitable to these Jewish refugees. So as a result of that, we don't want them marrying into the Jewish people. But that only applies to the men who should have gone out and helped the refugees. But the women, the Gemara says, kol kivodabas melech penima, a woman is supposed to have a certain modesty and her arena is in the home, not outside in the world. So the women were not responsible for being hospitable to the refugees. So therefore there's no ban on the women of Moab marrying into the Jewish people. So what that means is that the whole reason why Rus was allowed to marry Boaz was based on this idea that women have a certain modesty that they don't act outside the home. Their focus is on inside the home. Now, the question this raises is that Rus herself seems to act in a very immodest way. When she's trying to get the attention of Boaz in the story of Megillas Rus, she does all sorts of immodest things and puts herself out there. So her whole reason why she's allowed to marry Boaz is because of modesty. And yet, strangely enough, she seems to act very immodestly in the book of Rus. So the answer to this is that Rachel is also identified as a very modest woman. The Gemara says that because Rachel was so modest, that's why she merited to have a descendant like Shaul HaMelech, who was also a very humble person. He was hiding when Shmuel wanted to make him the king. So Rachel's family had a lot of modesty, which came from the matriarch Rachel herself. Now, on the other hand, Leah seems to have a more outgoing role. Because we find her fooling Yaakov into marrying her. She takes the signs from her sister Rachel and she fools Yaakov on their wedding night. And then again, she gets Yaakov to be with her, even though it was supposed to be Rachel's night, but she gives Rachel the Dudaim and she gets Yaakov that night. And that's when she has Yisachar. So we see that Leah is much more outgoing than Rachel. But yet the Gemara praises Leah's style as well. So here we have two sisters who seem to be a contrast. One is more modest, one is more outgoing, and yet both of them are praised. And the issue becomes even more pressing when it comes to Tamar, because here we find modesty and outgoingness all together in the same person. On the one hand, the Gemara explains that the reason why Yehuda did not recognize his daughter-in-law is because she was so modest when she was living with his son that he didn't even recognize his own daughter-in-law later. On the other hand, the whole story of Tamar is a very immodest story because she seduces and fools Yehuda into getting her pregnant. So Tamar acts in very immodest ways. So again, we have this contradiction that on the one hand, she was very modest when she was married to Yehuda's son, but then later she becomes incredibly immodest. So all of this shows that sometimes modesty is needed and sometimes the opposite and outgoingness is needed. And we don't blame people for necessarily being modest or outgoing so long as they're doing what's right in that moment. So says the Hamedrish Vahamasa, that's why at the wedding of Rus and Boaz, they make a particular point to mention these three women, Rachel and Leah and Tamar, because that was the day when the rabbis decided 
decided that the Moavi women are allowed to marry Jewish men. So you can imagine that there were people complaining about this new psak. They said, how can you allow Rus to marry Boaz when the whole basis of this leniency is that women are supposed to be more modest? So that's why we don't blame the Moavi women for not being hospitable. But the critics are saying that Rus herself is not modest. So how can you allow someone to marry into the Jewish people when she herself does not reflect the trait of modesty. So that's why the people giving this bracha, they choose Rachel and Leah. Their point is, look at how we have these two great mothers of the Jewish people, and both of them are great women, even though one of them was more modest and one of them was more outgoing, because both of them reflected what needed to be done at that time. And the same is true of Tamar, the mother of parrots. Meaning, if you look at the whole story, you see that sometimes she's modest, and sometimes she's the opposite, all according to what's needed. So that's why Rus is allowed to marry into the Jewish people, even though in her story she was not that modest, but that's what was needed. And what's important is not to have some rigid character trait, but to be able to adapt depending on what's needed at that moment. And the Hamedrash Vahamasa adds that this is a very important theme in the whole Torah, because there is a question, why does the Torah have so many rules, and yet when it comes to basic character traits like humility or anger or jealousy, the Torah barely discusses these character traits. So it seems the opposite. If the point of the Torah is to make us better people, then why is it legislating all sorts of details and it never legislates the core character traits? Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, it's this exact idea. Because the Torah only legislates things that are clear cut. The Torah is able to say in this situation, this is allowed or this is not allowed. And it's a universal principle that applies in all times and places to all people. But when it comes to character traits, it's too complicated and it changes depending on the context. So you can't start legislating when to be humble or when to get angry or when to show mercy because those are contextual. They depend on each situation and people need to have flexibility in order to be able to do the right thing. Sometimes it's better to be humble. Sometimes it's better not to be humble. Sometimes there's a place for anger. And obviously most times we try to avoid it. Sometimes there is a place to rush and sometimes you take your time. So the Torah cannot legislate these much more complicated character traits. And that's why the Torah doesn't really discuss it. It discusses the secondary things which will help us become better people. But in terms of the core character traits, we need to have the flexibility to be able to apply them as needed. So that's exactly the point that Rachel and Leah and Tamar and Rus that's what they're all illustrating. They're not rigidly bound to one form of modesty, but they're able to apply it depending on the context as needed. Now, most of us are not on the level of these great women, obviously. So instead, we do have certain more rigid character traits and we do apply them across the board. So sometimes the way we apply them is the right thing to do. And sometimes it's the wrong thing to do. But that's just the level that we're at. We're not able to adapt the way these great women in Tanakh were able to. But says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, there is an even worse type of person than the person who's 
rigid about their midos. And that is someone who does apply them in different contexts, but always for their own benefit, always in the wrong way. So it's one thing if someone is rigid about a midah and they do it whether it's right or wrong. It's not great, but at least it's consistent. But then you have people who are inconsistent and they always do whatever is going to be easier for themselves and whatever is going to be wrong. So for example, he says, there are some people who are incredibly aggressive in business. When it comes to their own personal gain, they're very aggressive. And yet when it comes to matters of Judaism, suddenly they become shy and reticent and they don't want to get involved and bother other people. So that is applying the midah of shyness in totally the wrong inverted way. The right way to do it is to be more shy when it comes to one's personal benefit and be more aggressive when it comes to spreading and standing up for Judaism. On the other hand, these people are doing it totally the opposite way. So now this helps explain the difference between Shimon and Levi. When it came to the story of Shechem, when they decide to kill out the whole city to avenge what they did to Dina, so both Shimon and Levi did something wrong. They were too hasty and violent and aggressive in what they did. But on the other hand, we can't say that this was totally wrong because they were standing up for the purity of the Jewish people. And that is a very important core character of the Jewish people. We do try to live lives of purity. So Shimon and Levi respond to Yaakov that how could they allow this man to defile their sister and not stand up for her and stand up for what was right and take revenge. So there was some debate, what was the right thing to do in this case? Should they have stood up for what was done, which was obviously wrong? On the other hand, there was a concern, as Yaakov tells them, that they endangered the whole family and the whole Jewish people at that time, because now other people are going to attack them. And this is a tension which could come up in all sorts of societies. You could have a few people who really want to go after the bad guys and punish them and do vigilante justice. On the other hand, you can't let it get out of control and have all sorts of people enforcing the law on their own. There does have to be a system of laws. There has to be judges and courts and police. So there does have to be a legal system. You can't just have people punishing whoever they want. So this is the same tension that we have when it comes to what Shimon and Levi did. Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, the solution to this is that there should be a few people in each society who are focused on defending the laws and protecting the innocents in society, but it shouldn't be the whole society. Most of the people should be advocating a certain slowness to the legal system so everybody balances each other out. There are a few people who are very eager to punish the bad guys, but most of the people balance them out and control that impulse so the whole society doesn't fall apart. So that's exactly the message that Yaakov gives Shimon and Levi. He says, Shimon Levi Achim, you are brothers, meaning you both have this tendency to jump too quickly to punish bad guys. So the solution is let me spread them out amongst the Jewish people so that
that there aren't too many of these types in the same community, but if they're spread out amongst the whole Jewish people, a few in each community, so then they'll actually play a positive role because they will be the defenders of what's right and they won't allow bad guys to get away with stuff. So they'll keep everybody honest, but you need just a few of them in a larger community. So that's exactly what Yaakov does. He tries to spread out Shimon and Levi amongst the Jewish people. Now, there is another problem with what Shimon and Levi did, because later on, when they were faced with a similar situation, which is the sale of Yosef, so again, Shimon and Levi should have stood up to the other brothers and said to them, how can we sell our own brother Yosef? That's not what Jews do. And here, suddenly Shimon and Levi turn around, and they're the leaders of the sale of Yosef. So this is Yaakov's complaint against them. It's one thing to be consistent, that you always stand up for the right thing. But in this case, Shimon and Levi did the worst thing possible. When it comes to Shechem, they were too quick to kill the city out. But when it comes to Yosef, they were too quick the other way to do what's wrong and not to do what's right. So that undercuts their whole claim that they are always the ones who do what's right. Now, interestingly, there is yet another story later on in history, which involves the tribes of Shimon and Levi, and that is the story of Pinchas and Zimri. So in this story again, and it's not Shimon and Levi themselves, but it's their tribes. Zimri comes from Shimon and Pinchas comes from Levi. So here we have two people who are acting rashly. They're not thinking through what they're doing, but they're doing the opposite. Zimri is doing the wrong thing. And Pinchas jumps to kill him without asking, without going through the whole legal process. He just jumps to killing Zimri. But Pinchas is doing the right thing. So says the HaMedrash V'Hamaseh, according to the Medrash, Yaakov saw this prophetically, this story of Pinchas. And that's why he ties in the whole story of Zimri. And he says to Shimon and Levi, you both have the character trait of acting too quickly without thinking it through. But later on in Jewish history, Shimon is going to take this in a more negative way when it comes to Zimri. And Levi is going to take it in a more positive way because he's going to produce Pinchas. So even though in their own lifetimes, Shimon and Levi act very much together, but later on in Jewish history, Levi's tribe redeems itself of this Midah because Pinchas applies it for the good, whereas Zimri applies it for the bad. So Yaakov's message to Shimon and Levi has to do with this Midah that they have, and he's going through various stories and how it played out, and he's trying to tell them that they need to apply this Midah in the proper way and not be using it in the wrong way. Now, when it comes to Ruvain, says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, he actually reflects the opposite Midah of Levi. He has a certain shyness. He does not not act boldly. So that's why it seems he didn't save Yosef, even though Ruvain did not want them to sell Yosef, but he was too timid to stand up and save Yosef. So he let them get away with it and he only half-heartedly protested. So Ruvain is unlike Levi. He's not bold and he doesn't jump into things, but he's more shy and timid. So that's why Yaakov says to him, you cannot be the leader of the Jewish people because those are 
not the traits of leadership. Levi has a leadership role as the Kohanim and Leviim because they're able to be bold and to stand up for the Torah. But you, Ruvain, if you're going to be shy, so you cannot be the leader. And that's why even though he was the firstborn, Yaakov takes away the royalty and the priesthood from Ruvain because he was shy and that's not a way to be a leader. So that's the explanation of what the Gemara says that Pachaz is an acronym that Ruvain shook and he was afraid. In other words, the Gemara is pointing out that Ruvain's strength is that he takes things slowly, that he doesn't just jump into it like Shimon and Levi. So because he shakes and he thinks things through before he does them, so parach chet me'alecha, that's going to prevent him from sinning. So even though this midah of being shy does have its drawbacks and Ruvain can't be the leader because he's not going to be bold for the Torah, but it will also save him from sinning. So there is something good about it as well, and that's what the Gemara is pointing out with this acronym. But that's what Yaakov now says to Ruvain, why did you move my bed, which was a rash act? And again, that was out of character for Ruvain. So the Gemara explains that Ruvain was upset because he thought it was an insult to his mother. So he did something rash. But the point that Yaakov is saying is that you, Ruvain, are the timid one. So why did you suddenly apply the wrong mida when it came to the story of moving my bed? bed that you suddenly acted rash. So again, Yaakov's message to Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi is very similar. In all these cases, he's pointing out what their core midah is, and then he faults them for applying it in the wrong situation when they should have been consistent with their good midah. So the ideal is to be flexible and to apply the right midah at the right time, but if someone is going to be rigid with their midah, at least they should be consistent. And in these cases, according to the Amedrish Vamasa, Yaakov is pointing out cases where his sons were inconsistent and they ended up doing things wrong in both cases. So this is a good reminder for all of us that when it comes to midos, it's very complicated to apply them and we're all prone to apply them in the way that benefits us. But the right thing is to assess each situation and apply the proper Mida in that case. And we see that even these great men like Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi, who of course were tremendous tzaddikim and would never violate a rule of the Torah, but when it comes to applying the proper midos and the proper character traits, so it's very tricky. So obviously all the more so for all of us, it's very tricky and it's something to be aware of. So that's the first drasha about the complication of different midos. Now the second drasha has to do with the conversation at the end of the Parsha, where Yosef's brothers are worried that he's going to take revenge against them now that Yaakov died. So they make up a story that Yaakov wanted them to tell Yosef not to take revenge. And Yosef says, of course I wouldn't. I am not in place of Hashem. And this whole situation worked out for the best. And then it says that Yosef made them promise that when they left Egypt, they would bring his bones with them. So the Medrash says something surprising that they both made a vow to each other. Yosef made them promise that they're not upset at him, and he promised that he's not upset at them. So the question is, why would we think the brothers are upset at Yosef? What did he do to them in this story? 
So the Hamedrash Vamasa points out that when we look at this parsha, there's something strange. When Yaakov wants to make sure that they're going to bury him in Israel, so he calls in Yosef and he has a whole long conversation and he pushes him very hard to swear that he's going to make sure that Yaakov is buried in Israel. And the Medrash explains that he specifically spoke to Yosef because as the king, Yosef would be able to carry this out. The other brothers maybe didn't have the resources to do so. But the problem is that later Yaakov does tell all the brothers to make sure that he gets buried in the Mara Samach Pela. So if they didn't have the resources to do so, why is Yaakov even asking them? But more strange is that Yaakov, again, really pushes Yosef hard on this. On the other hand, when Yosef asks the Jews to promise that they'll take his bones with them, he doesn't push them very hard. He just says it, and that's the end of it. Now, if anything, Yosef should have pushed them even more because this was a trickier situation than taking Yaakov up to Israel. So why is it the reverse? Why is Yaakov so concerned to make sure it gets done and Yosef seems less concerned? So Damerish Vamasa explains that what Yaakov was asking was much harder than what Yosef was asking because Yaakov was saying to Yosef, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. And that was a big ask because Yaakov was known as a very holy man and these Egyptians revered Yaakov. They revered all the blessings that he had brought to their land. So of course they they were going to desperately want him to be buried in their land. So this was a major slap in the face to Egypt. And Yosef is the second in command of this empire. And Yaakov is now telling him, I don't want to be buried here. I want you to take me to Israel. So this was a very politically fraught situation for Yosef. The empire of Egypt was going to lose a lot. And here Yaakov is asking his son, who's one of the leaders of the empire, to go ahead and and bury him in another country. So that's why Yaakov pressed Yosef very hard for this because he knew that Yosef was going to be in a very difficult situation. The other brothers who were not politically involved in Egypt, they were just foreigners living there. So for them, this was a much lesser ask. So that's why Yaakov just throws it in because he knew that they wouldn't be opposed to this. As opposed to Yosef, who would have to give up a lot by burying his father in Israel, which would reinforce his outsider status. So that's why Yaakov really presses him very hard on this and he has him swear and he wants to reiterate that he really does not want to be buried in Egypt and he wants to be taken to Israel. Now, after Yaakov dies, so again, the brothers are worried that Yosef is now going to take revenge. So they come to apologize for the terrible sin that they did in selling him. So Dahmeder Shvamasa points out that not all the brothers were equally guilty. Ruvain, as we said in the previous Previous drasha, he didn't really want to hurt Yosef. He was just too timid to stop the other brothers, as opposed to some of the other brothers who were actively trying to hurt Yosef. So when the brothers apologized, some of them were more guilty than others. And that's exactly what they say. Forgive the pesha and the hate of your brothers. A pesha is a willful sin. So those are the brothers who tried to hurt Yosef. 
as opposed to a chait, which is more unintentional. So that was like Ruvain, who didn't want to hurt Yosef. He was just too weak to protect Yosef and stop what the other brothers were doing. So that's what the brothers say. Forgive all of us, whether we did a pesha or a chait, whether we were willful or whether we were just too weak to stop it. So that's what Yosef now responds. Am I Hashem? Meaning Hashem orchestrated this whole situation for the good because I've been able to save all of you from the famine. So you don't have to worry about what it is that you did because at the end of the day, whatever your intentions were, but it actually ended up being good for all of us. So you're all in the category of people who didn't really intend to harm me because that's the way Hashem orchestrated it. So therefore you're all forgiven. But now even if Yosef was able to forgive their evil intentions, the facts are that they hurt him. So how was he able to forgive what they actually did? did to him. Forget about their intentions. Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, something interesting happened as Yosef got older. The last thing the Torah records is that Yosef gives the Jews a sign for when they would be freed. That you are going to be redeemed in the future. Now, why is Yosef talking about the redemption? In his time, the Jews were not enslaved in Egypt. They were still living a good life there. And the second in command was a Jew. So why is Yosef busy talking about redemption? Says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, as Yosef grew older, he began to see, he was very politically savvy, and he could already see the roots of Egyptian anti-Semitism, that they were already starting to take hold, that the Egyptians were turning on the Jews. Even though nothing practical had happened, the Jews were not slaves yet, and Yosef was still the king, but he could already tell that things were cooling and that the Jews were eventually going to be in trouble. And this bothered Yosef a lot because he knew that the Jews only came to Egypt based on his advice. He was the one that brought them down and settled them in Egypt. They only wanted to come temporarily just to get some food. And Yosef was the one that orchestrated that they ended up living in Egypt. So as Yosef begins to see the tides turning and he realizes that the Jews are going to suffer in Egypt. So he got very upset and he felt guilty himself because he was the one that caused the Jews to settle in this land, which would now be so difficult for them. So Yosef is haunted by this thought that whereas his brothers had tried to hurt him and it ended up working out for the best, he tried to help them and now it was going to work out and be very difficult for them. So Yosef is haunted by this, but Yosef is able to comfort himself with what he's believed all along, which is that all of this comes from Hashem. Nobody is doing anything on their own over here. Hashem is orchestrating the whole situation. So even if there is going to be a slavery and difficult time in Egypt, but Hashem will save them from that as well, because ultimately Hashem always causes everything to work out for the best in the end. So that's how Yosef comforts himself, that even though this is going to get very difficult for the Jews in Egypt, but ultimately it will all work out because Hashem is always running the show. So once Yosef realized that, he was able to fully forgive his brothers, because now it turned out that it wasn't 
wasn't just that he shouldn't blame them for their intentions, but whatever they did and whatever Yosef did, they were all just pawns in the hands of Hashem. Nobody was really doing anything on their own. Hashem was using them as his puppets to do what needed to be done in this world. So now in his old age, Yosef was finally able to fully forgive his brothers for the actions and the harm that they had done to him. So that's why Yosef tells the Jews, Pakod Yifkod Hashem Eschem. Hashem will redeem you in the future. How does Yosef know that? From his own life story, he knows that. Because he himself saw that even things which look awful in the moment are eventually a redemption of Hashem. It's Hashem working in the world to save people and to do what needs to be done for the best. So Yosef says, I saw from my own life story that even even though there will be difficult times in Egypt, but eventually Hashem will redeem you. I know that because I myself lived it. So that's why Yosef was worried that the other brothers might be upset at him because he had encouraged them to move to Egypt and he knew that that was going to be a difficult decision for their children. So that's why Yosef also wanted them to promise that they were not upset at him. And this also explains why Yosef did not need to push them hard hard to take him to Israel because the whole point of his message is that they're going to be redeemed because there's this full reconciliation between Yosef and his brothers. Both sides understand that this was Hashem orchestrating all of these events. So because Yosef's message is so positive and he's saying that from this we know that the Jews will be redeemed. So when he asked them to take his bones with him to Israel, there was no need to push because everyone wanted to do what Yosef was asking, everyone had a good feeling about what he was asking them to do. As opposed to Yaakov, where as we said, Yosef would have a difficult time with this. So that's why Yaakov is worried about this and he makes Yosef swear. But in Yosef's case, the feeling that his listeners would have when he told them to take his bones to Israel would be positive. So he didn't need to push it very much. So this is a beautiful drusha explaining what Yosef says explicitly but giving context to this whole idea that Hashem was orchestrating all of these events and that that's how Yosef very beautifully knew that the Jews would be redeemed eventually, even though they'd have a difficult slavery. Now, the halacha section has to do with the mitzvah of honoring parents. The Torah says, Vayechal Yaakov letzavos esbanav, that Yaakov commanded his children. And the Medrash explains that Yaakov commanded his sons to follow three things, not to do avodah zara, idolatry, not to curse Hashem, and to carry his bed to be pallbearers. So the Hamedrash Vahamasa asks, it makes sense that Yaakov has to tell them to carry his bed, but why on earth would he need to tell them not to do Avodah Zarah or to curse Hashem? Those are explicit mitzvahs in the Sheva Mitzvos B'nai Noach. So every human being is commanded on those mitzvahs. So why does Yaakov need to explicitly command his sons not to do those prohibitions? And this point is made explicitly in the Gemara in Ksubis 
Daf Kuf Gimel. It says that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi on his deathbed told his sons to make sure to honor their mother. So the Gemara asks, why would he need to say that when anyways the Torah commands them to honor their mother? So we see from this Gemara that one does not need to command on their deathbed something which is already commanded by the Torah. So the same question would be on this Medrash, why is Yaakov commanding them not to do Avodah Zarah or to curse Hashem, which are anyways prohibitions of the Torah? So the Hamedrash Vamasa gives a very cute, sharp answer. He explains that there is in fact a debate between the Medrash and the Gemara. The Gemara assumes that if something is commanded by the Torah, there is no need for a father to repeat that command to his children on his deathbed because the Torah already commanded it. So there's no point to the father repeating it. But the Medrash disagrees and it holds that even something commanded explicitly in the Torah, the father might repeat to his children in order to encourage them and motivate them to be careful about this mitzvah. And the basis for this debate has to do with the issue of children honoring their stepmother after the father dies. So the Gemara in Baba Basra, Kuflamid Aleph Amud Beis, says that if a man writes that all his property, his whole estate is going to belong to his wife, the children's stepmother, he doesn't intend that literally. He's just trying to make the point that the children should honor his wife even after he dies. So it's not that she owns financially the whole estate, the sons inherit the estate, but their father is telling them to honor their mother. So the Rashbam writes that since the commandment to honor one's stepmother after the father dies is not explicit in the Torah, it's derived from the extra word es avicha. It says honor your father. That extra word es includes also his wife, one's stepmother. So that's why the father was concerned that the sons are not going to honor her after he dies. So he wrote in his will that she's going to inherit the estate. That's how the Rashbam explains this. The father's concern is motivated because the command to honor a stepmother after the father dies is not explicit in the Torah. It's derived from an extra word. So Reb Kiva Eger and the Marshal ask a question that this comment of the Rashbam goes against the Gemara. The Gemara says that after a father dies, there is no command to honor a stepmother. The whole commandment to honor the stepmother is only when the father's alive and they're married. But once the father dies, there actually is no commandment to honor the stepmother. Whereas the Rashbam seems to be saying that it's not explicit in the Torah, but we derive it from the Psukim even after the father dies. So that's Reb Kiveger's question, that this comment of the Rashbam seems to contradict the Gemara that there is no commandment to honor a stepmother after the father dies. So the Hamedrash Vamasa explains based on what is the reason that one is commanded to honor their stepmother. So he says that there are actually two different subtle versions of the Gemara. One is what it says in our Gemaras, Es Avicha. The Torah says, honor your father. So Zu Eshes Avicha. That refers also to the stepmother. Now the Beis Yosef in Simon Reish Mem 
quotes a slightly different version of this Gemara, which is es avicha lirabos eshes avicha. That the word es is an extra word which comes to include the stepmother. So says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, the difference between these two versions is whether honoring the stepmother is just a derivative of honoring the father, meaning the Torah said that one should honor their father. So disrespecting his current wife would also be disrespectful of the father. So included in the mitzvah of honoring the father is also to honor his wife, who's the stepmother. So the reason for honoring the stepmother is that it's included as part of honoring the father. Or the other version says that there is an independent reason to honor the stepmother. It's also included in the broader mitzvah of honoring parents. So the Torah said to honor one's biological father and mother, and included in that, the word S also tells us that there is a mitzvah to honor the stepmother, just like there's a mitzvah to honor the oldest brother. So that's also an independent mitzvah. It doesn't only apply when the parents are alive. It's an independent mitzvah, which is part of the mitzvah of honoring parents. It also includes that the oldest brother gets honored. So the same would be true of the stepmother, that she's also one of the characters that's included in this broader mitzvah. Now, the obvious difference between these two versions would be whether the mitzvah to honor the stepmother continues after the father dies. If it's only a form of honoring the father, so once he dies, then there's no more mitzvah to honor the stepmother. But if it's an independent commandment, so then even after the father dies, she on her own still deserves respect. So now this whole issue ties in with the case where the father writes his estate belongs to his wife. The issue that the Gemara is raising there is whether the father wants the sons to honor his wife even if the Torah did not command them to do so after he dies. Meaning, would the father care to try to force the sons to honor his wife when the Torah did not command them? Or he only cares that they honor his wife when the Torah said to do so? So the answer of the Gemara is that the man tries to make sure that his wife's going to be honored even after he dies, even if the Torah did not command that, because he also wants his own brothers, not his sons, but his own brothers should honor his wife. So we see that the man is not only trying to enforce when the Torah says to honor her, but he on his own is trying to protect his wife after he dies. So it follows from that conclusion of the Gemara that a husband wants his wife to be honored. That's part of his own honor. So now we can say that when the Torah commands to honor a stepmother, it's because that's a form of honoring the father. So it follows from that, that once the father dies, there is no longer a Torah commandment to honor the stepmother. So that's exactly the conclusion that the Gemara says that after the husband slash father dies, the children are not obligated from the Torah to honor their stepmother. But that's only according to the conclusion of the Gemara in Baba Basra, where we see clearly that a man is concerned that his wife should be honored. That's part of his own concern in the world, even aside from whatever the Torah said.
But at the beginning of the Gemara, when it was raising the whole issue of whether the husband cares for his wife to be honored more than the Torah commanded, so there was a possibility that the husband only is trying to repeat the commandment of the Torah. In other words, he doesn't care for his wife to be honored for his own sake. He cares because that's the rule of the Torah. So that's his only concern. He's trying to make sure that his children follow the rules of the Torah. So at that step in the Gemara, before it reached the conclusion, at that point we could say that the father is only trying to get his sons to honor his wife after he dies because that's what the Torah commands. So it would follow from that that honoring the stepmother is not a form of honoring the father. It's its own independent mitzvah, meaning the father doesn't care if his wife is honored. He's only concerned with it because the Torah says that she deserves honor. And as we said, if the stepmother deserves her own mitzvah of honor, so then that would continue even after her husband, the father, dies. So that's why the Rashbam at the beginning of that Gemara says that at this stage in the Gemara, there is a mitzvah to honor the stepmother. It's not explicit in the Torah. That's why the father feels that he needs to repeat this command to his sons, but there is a mitzvah to honor the mother. So that's why the Rashbam is not contradicting the conclusion of the Gemara in Ksubis. He's pointing out that at the beginning of the Gemara in Baba Basra, there is a possibility that the mitzvah of honoring the stepmother continues after the father died. Now, the conclusion of the Gemara goes the other way, and that's also the conclusion of the Gemara in Ksubis, that there is no commandment to honor the stepmother after the father dies, because the whole basis for the mitzvah to honor her was in order to show honor to the father. So now applying this debate, so to speak, between the beginning of the Gemara in Baba Basra and the conclusion. So the Gemara had asked, why did Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi tell his sons to honor their mother after he died? So the Gemara answers, it wasn't their biological mother, it was their stepmother. So that's why Rebbe was telling his sons to honor her because they had no Torah obligation to honor her. Now, again, this is going to depend on these two views. According to the conclusion of the Gemara, there was no obligation to honor her. And that's why Rebbe said to his sons, make sure you honor her because there was no commandment to honor her. So we see that fathers only command things which are not already in the Torah. But according to the other view that the Hamedrash Vahamasa developed based on the Rashbam, based on the beginning step in Baba Basra. So there is a command to honor the stepmother even after the father dies. It's not explicit in the Torah, but it's derived from the word S. So according to that view, Rebbe was telling his sons to honor their stepmother after he died, even though it is in the Torah. It's not explicit, but there is mention of this commandment in the Torah through the word S. And still, Rebbe told his sons to be careful in that mitzvah. So according to that view, we see that fathers do tell their sons to do things, even if it's already a mitzvah of the Torah. And that would be the view of this Medrish that Yaakov reminded his sons to avoid Avodah and Birkas Hashem, even though those are explicit prohibitions, because fathers will do that to motivate their sons.